This episode of the podcast is with Cyrus Sutton. I knew who Cyrus was for so long. We've had so many mutual friends, but it wasn't until he came to Santa Cruz to do a screening of his new documentary, Island Earth, that I got to sit down with him for the very first time and have a real conversation. And I like the guy. Uh, His new film, Island Earth, which is about the GMO issue in Hawaii, is touring right now. It's super good. Really well done story. And he still has two more stops in New York. He's going to be out in New York showing the film on June 27th and 28th. You can also go to his website, islandearthfilm.com, to host your own screening. Once again, I highly recommend this film. Uh, Cyrus is a director. He is a professional surfer. Super groovy style on a longboard. Knows how to get barreled. Uh, his his film clients have included Adidas, Apple, Corona, Reef, Patagonia. His career has been well documented by various national publications such as Surfer Magazine and the New York Times. Uh, you can head over to my website, kyle.surf. I'll put up links to all of his work. Not kyle.surf.com, just kyle.surf. It's so simple. It's too simple. Everyone always types in kyle.surf.com. It's easy. Uh, and hey, I just signed up for an Amazon affiliate program. So I, I know that you're expecting me to ask you to donate to the podcast. Don't worry, I'll do that in a second. But if you don't have money to donate, but you buy shit on Amazon and you want to support me, I can't legally say that it supports the podcast, but it goes to support my... Uh, addiction to rollerblading so i'll be able to get some new rollerblades with your amazon purchase go to my website and you're going to see a link to amazon you click that you save that in your bookmarks and then everything that you buy on amazon i get five to eight percent of uh amazon just gives me that money and it's at no cost to you it's pretty cool uh my friend chris ryan who has a podcast also just just taught me this so head over to the website kyle.surf all right uh what else we got what else we got hey are you feeling super generous give me some money on patreon i didn't mean to be disrespectful uh this podcast is non-sponsored and it's supporters like you that make it possible so you can head to the website kyle.surf and uh Give me a few bucks a month. Uh, That goes to supporting the podcast, not my rollerblading habit. And uh, you get in the running immediately for a giveaway. I do a monthly giveaway because I do have surf sponsors. They're awesome. Patagonia, RPM Fitness, Sector 9 Skateboards, and they all give away free shit every month to my Patreons. Patrons. Patrons. So you could win a skateboard. You could win a fitness kit. You could win some food from Patagonia. All right. Let's get this bad boy going. Please welcome my man, Cyrus Sutton. Kyle Tierman here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part on Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. Welcome to the Kyle Show. 
so both of your parents were professors, but you uh, opted out of the university system. I did. I did. It was kind of a... Um, it was just a thing where I actually felt really bad about it for a long time. You know, I, I made a, I made a surf phone when I was 19. I was obsessed. I got bit by this bug of, I was obsessed with writing when I was a kid. I went to creative writing. I spent my summers going to writing camps and, um, and then I found photography in my senior year of high school and this was before digital. So it was in the dark room and I geeked out on that. I don't know how much I loved it. I just thought it was fascinating and I thought I was it was fun. I could compose images pretty naturally. And, and then uh, a friend of mine made a surf film just for our local community. And I thought he was just like a superstar. And I was like, I want to do that. What was the surf movie? Um, he made one called the cast and then he made one, he made a few, but it was just all like local longboarders, you know, from like orange County. And, um, and yeah, I just remember like, I want to do that. And when I, decided I want to make make wanted to make a film have you ever been in love for the first time and you just like you can't see even you sleep it's it's a sweet sleep but you don't have to sleep that much and you like feel like you're floating on a cloud and you're just obsessed yeah I mean, I've, I've never wake up in the middle of the night and you're all sticky you're like oh what is that <laughs> oh, <God>. <laughs> <laughs> totally I know all about love man totally totally yeah so um, I, that's how I felt when I was making that film and, and it ended up being, um, one of the best selling surf films of the year. And then I just basically, it became, which one was it? It was called riding waves. And what was the premise? Day in the life of Rob Machado, Joel Tudor, Dane Reynolds, Donovan Frankenreiter, and John Peck. Nice. And did you know all of those people before you reached out to them? If I didn't, I figured out a way to know them. <laughs> get them in my movie well, how, how did you uh <laughs> yeah how did that work um i'd surfed i'd surf contests with joel um and dane when dane was um he was doing these like amateur california tour pstas or something i don't know if i'm botching that but yeah so so you sort of knew the guy yeah i knew him and I, I talked to him a few times just you know you're at the same break you hang out all day you're waiting for your heat and um joel the same way and then um, John Peck was like this old bearded dude lived in his van and got all the best waves and, you know, did headstands and, you know, all kinds of out there stuff. And I thought, and I'd heard he was like the surf, one of the first people to surf pipeline with Butch Ben Artsdalen and yeah, he to, he's a, he's an interesting cat. I've never met him, but I've heard some, uh, stories about him. He's the, the original minimalist. Yeah. I mean, he's. Yeah, he's out there. He's a he's a really cool. He's been a longtime friend and mentor of mine. Um, so yeah, I had him in the podcast to kind of end it. Or in the we're film. on a podcast. Yeah, <laughs> we're in the film to end it, and um, yeah, it just ended up coming together. And I, I my mom knew, taught with uh, a lady whose whose husband did uh, motion graphic animation, so he was able to make this cool animation in the beginning and and after i made that film it, it was the age what you could make a surf dvd taylor steel's company steelhouse was this physical large office in solana beach like right on the beach and you could make a, a lot of money by selling a successful surf dvd because that was the one medium you could consume content yeah when people would go to the surf shop and they would buy the dvd there so you were able to get it into a number of surf shops immediately, and that's how people saw it? All over the world. All over two, the world. It was 2003. Wow. 
Um, and you distributed it through Taylor Steele's production company? Yeah. Nice. What did that conversation sound like um, originally getting the distribution? Because I think that th- that is a big um, ceiling that a lot of filmmakers hit. They have an idea for a great story. They even get the funding to tell the story, but they don't think about the distribution aspect and how they're going to get people to see it. And that's one thing that I've noticed about you again and again is that you're very good at getting people to see the content that you um, produce. Well, to answer that question, I have to take you back to Longboard Grotto, which was Surfy Surfy before Surfy Surfy was Surfy Surfy, and the, and the building got torn down. It was this big like kind of archive of all long, all things subculture longboard in San Diego, and I'd go down there all the time and like look at all these old VHS tapes that were well, maybe only fifty of them were made, and and um, and Rob Machado walked in. It was one of the things. The cool thing about it was they had a back room with um, used surfboards and you know from the 70s and 60s and there's kind of nowhere else you could do that it was before being you know the retro thing was cool and and so I was in there looking at fishes and stuff and and Rob Machado walked in with his daughter and I was like hey man I'm making a surf film like I want you to be in it and in retrospect right I mean he probably got that every time he went to the coffee shop but uh he was like oh cool man and then uh and then I couldn't get a hold of him, of course, but I like tracked him down through actually through JP St. Pierre, who did Surfy Surfy in that same space. And he did the glassing, Moonlight Glassing, did all the floor, Rob's boards. And and I made a, I, I spent a day with Joel Tudor and shot and edited this thing and off put it to VHS tape and got JP to give Rob the tape. And then after that, Rob was like, Yeah, I'll do this film with you. And he liked, I don't know, he liked something about it. And, and so from there, I was able to get Rob on the project and Donovan um, and round out, you know, the cast of the film. And just the, that cast alone, you know, was pretty well known in surfing. And Rob introduced me to Taylor and Taylor was just like, yeah. And he saw the cut of the film. He's like, yeah, we'll do it. You know? What do you think uh, in that first cut that you produced being a, a new filmmaker uh, with Joel attracted Rob to it because when people ask you to be a part of their project there's an element of trust that you're giving to the filmmaker because I mean anyone who's ever sat in an edit bay knows that you can make anyone look any way you want them to Mm. Uh, and there's an aspect of trusting the person that they're going to make you look good and they're going to represent you in a way that you want to be represented and I think that most professional athletes have had at least one experience where they trusted someone to to create a product and then it, it absolutely misrepresented them or the vibe wasn't right or something. So what do you think it was in that initial cut that, uh, that attracted, um, what, what do you think that like the essence of your filmmaking has that attracted those people to want to be in it? Uh, I never thought about that before. Um, I think there was this like sincere reverence for stylish surfing. And I was just upset. I mean, that's what I would, I had was obsessed with from the time I was fifteen, you know. And so, it was a culmination of being able to work with them, and I think they could see that passion, and, and that I was gonna make them look good, like you said. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Um, very cool, very cool. And then um, walk me through then. From, so that film then was seen by a ton of people. <coughs> uh, and what did that lead to? 
that led to working in LA and working with various people in the industry and um, I ended up um, on a project a documentary for Fox Field TV a couple of years later and we won an Emmy for that um, giving aid um, after the tsunami in, in Banda Aceh and I went there with Dave Rostovich, Tom Carroll, Kate Skerritt, and then um, uh, Justin Crum, who I had worked on. I had worked with the Opera Studios, which made all the like longboard TV and the Surfer's Journal pieces. Of, right. Like, there was all those videos. Right, right, Wingnut, right. Wingnut narrated them all. And, yeah, I wrote, I wrote Wingnut's di- dialogue for those different shows um, while I was making Riding Waves as a trade to be able to off put the final product on their editing system what a great skill uh early on to have developed writing i think that a big mistake that a lot of filmmakers um make is that they they think that they can bypass writing because they're filmmakers and it's it's video right but to make anything to get funding for any project it takes first a written pitch and it, it takes the ability to have someone believe in your story enough that they're willing to give you money to do that. Um, and it's something that I personally have had to overcome uh, later in life because I was writing these pitches and they weren't very good and they weren't getting funded. And I was kind of just like, man, what's happening? Like, I, I know how to make movies. I know I have the, I have the skills to do it, but I need that first step of, of being able to write a pitch that gets... Um, that gets through the door. And as a result, I've uh, since then uh, started writing a monthly column just to sharpen the knife uh, in a local magazine. I I read a great book that I recommend anyone check out called On Writing Well, uh, which is about writing nonfiction. And uh, yeah, it seems like it was a good skill that kind of allowed you to initially just start making movies. Would you say that that was something that was true for you? Yeah, I'm gonna write down that on writing. Well, I want to check that out. Yeah, um, it's a good one. It's uh, it was written like, man, 30 years ago, and it's still to this day is seen as one of the primary books for writing nonfiction. And it's also entertaining to be able to have a book on writing. It's not on any specific story that uh, can keep you laughing and keep you moving through it and, and actually teach, teach you stuff, uh, is really helpful. The, the section on travel writing is so good because he talks about how, uh, travel writing is one of the, um, the, the aspects in where most travel writing is where most writers do their worst work. And the reason for that is because travel writing is so, um, it's so easy to be cliche Right. If you're in Europe and you talk about the rolling hills or <laughs> the forgotten town or the clippity clop of horses going down the the uh, cobblestone uh, alleyway or, you know, the the myriad of dandelions. Like these are all cliches that unless we really l- look at them, um, they're very easy to kind of creep. It's very easy for those to creep into our writing style uh, and. You know, he he talks about like, look, if you're on a beach, don't talk about the seagulls on the beach or the sand on the beach. 
beaches tend to have seagulls and sand. Mm. Talk about something that's going to be unique to your own experience there. And uh, it was really helpful for me because most of the writing that I do is um, on subjects of travel, places that I go and stories that I tell. And I was reading it just thinking, oh my God, I've used all of those cliches <laughs> way too much. Totally. But you don't know that it's bad until someone tells you that it's bad. Um, yeah. <laughs> but man, I love it, man. R- writing is such a, uh, it's such a gratifying experience when you write something that it just kind of sticks and there's that key and you're able to explain it in exactly the way that you want. I think it's it's one of the most freeing feelings to explain something the way that you want to explain it. And whether or not you're doing your writing or you're um, a photographer or you're a podcaster, really the one of the primary goals of all these arts is just to be able to express yourself in a way that feels true and honest. And I think that, I mean, for example, personally, um, my love for podcasting in many ways comes from that horrible feeling I get when I'm trying to explain myself and it's not coming out the way that I want it to. Mm. You, you ever just feel tongue tied? Yeah. It happens a lot in relationships. Like with, with just, I'm trying to tell you what I <laughs> want to say, but it's not coming out the way that I want it to. And man, I'm, I'm, uh, in awe and I'm so captivated by people who can explain themselves the way that they want to. Mm. Did you feel, um, like when you were, uh, making your most recent film Island earth, that it was, um, a representation, an honest representation. And you were, did you feel that you were able to explain yourself in the way that you wanted to? Hmm. I, you know, I was listening to what you were talking about there of like explaining, explaining ourselves. And when I was younger, I definitely wanted to explain myself and I wanted to like push out my vision of the world and like put it into this little like Petri dish and make my own little, you know, it was almost like a God complex of every project you create, you, you're the master of it and it's your little world and you're giving birth to this little baby. And, and I think that this film was more about, um, checking all that at the door and just kind of really listening to people and, and trying to, um, share and put to work the gifts that I'd cultivated in those kind of more self-indulgent younger years and try to most accurately convey a truth that oftentimes unfolded in real time in front of me that I didn't know the answer to. And that, that freaked me out, like making a film and not knowing what the ending was going to be or what even the right side of the line was, is not how I've ever operated. It's always been, I'm inspired to say something and I think that I'm going to be able to do it in a way that people are going to listen and I go do it. Right. This was very much, I am the idiot in the room in every way. Yeah. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a, I'm not a farmer. I'm not a Hawaiian. So yeah. Um, that's a really good way to look at it. And for people who haven't seen the film Island earth, I went and, to the Santa Cruz premiere last night. Uh, and I really appreciated that you showed a complex story because GMOs are a complex story and it's very easy to get on one side, dig yourself into the trench with your team and start throwing grenades at the other side. And that can be either that GMOs are evil grenade thrown or on the other side, it's 
science is going to save us and GMOs are going to feed the world. And there are those grenades being thrown too, but both are oversimplified narratives. And I really appreciated you telling the side of Cliff Capona, who is um, one of the main characters, who is going to, uh, correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, but he was going to to school um, to go work for one of these agrochemical companies. Um believing that the skills that he was learning there were really going to benefit agriculture in Hawaii. Uh, but then also taking, telling the stories of people in Hawaii who are um, getting sick from a lot of these chemicals being sprayed right next to them. Um, and that GMOs, I, I thought that you were able to really effectively parse um, that that bullet of, or you're able to parse the issues of that GMOs are not necessarily evil in themselves, um, but the argument is that these people don't want to be sprayed, um, have spraying happening right next to their schools or their houses, which I can I can imagine is a very it was a difficult and complex story to tell. Yeah, it it was, and but to go back to what we were talking about right before that too is like I've I've I did have an idea that I wanted to communicate that the Hawaiian system that as it was, I learned about the Hawaiian system before I learned about the GMO issue. So I learned about this amazing um, ability and system that the, the Hawaiians had worked out that, that recycled nutrients and water flow many times from the, the, the crest of the mountains all the way to the ocean to get to create um food supplies a consistent food supply the ahupua'a system yeah right hey, break that down for people who don't know what it is yeah so the ahupua'a system basically it's it a lot of these islands are volcanic and there's a there's a series of mountains and valleys that kind of radiate out from the center of these islands and and ahupua'a basically translates to a watershed and that watershed is you know from crest to crest it's the valley and that's and oftentimes um different um groups of people lived in these different valleys and it was a way of managing all of the and it was very easy to see that the nutrient flow would just come from these mountains and it would go end up in the sea so it started with the sacred mountains where you don't cut down anything there's there's a kapu or um a complete um uh a complete what would you call it a um a is it a uh, complete system of? I mean, I, mean, I, I know I know a bit about the system. Ka but. Kapu means um, it's like a, you're not allowed to like no trespassing okay. sign or like gotcha. a, an edict that's that's universal that if you gotcha. if you do harvest anything from up there, it's punishable by death. Oh wow! So they understood that the water and the trees up in the very top they create the rain, they catch the rain, um, which there's science coming out now that show the different evaporation from leaves. Um, with there's a chemical in the leaf in the photosynthesis so photosynthesis i'm probably botching this because i'm not a scientist but it helps clouds con you know that, that water Concentrate. Con condensate yeah. into the clouds and then it creates rain so they don't want to if they deforest the mountaintops that's going to stop the, the the rain coming on a consistent basis yeah and then they capture that that water that gets cleaned through that system and then becomes um, gets diverted and it's basically put into these different perennial root crops which um, will primarily 
it was all tarot, but there's very there's many different kinds of tarot that they would use, whether it would be from the highland or the lowlands. And these are very much like rice paddies, rice terraces. You know, you see those photos of sides of cliffs you know, carved out. and But these were um, stagnant kind of pools of water that the water would cycle through and not stagnate to create. Well, it was not stagnant. If it was stagnant, it would be a, a bad system. But it had just enough water flow to where they could harvest these things. And perennial means that they could bring them back year after year. So you cut off the root eat the root you cut off the leaves you eat the leaves but then you just keep replanting the stems so you could have stems that are 200 years old and it's you're still eating that same plant but and they replicate so in, they're incredibly high in calories and in, incredibly high in nutrients pretty high in calories and because they were a tropical system that was just all year so they were able to support a huge number of people consistently and that was their bread and butter that was what happened near their villages and then the effluent from those streams after the because they were kind of mud patties that would then be used as it went out they noticed probably somebody in in a different tribe noticed that there were fish coming to eat that and then whatever microscopic thing was feeding on something else slightly larger slightly larger and it cascaded up to bigger fish you know being there so they're like well why don't we figure out a system to hold these guys and so that created the hawaiian fish pond so they were able to have this sustained protein source with very little energy and with they had these gates that would allow fish to swim in but then they get fat enough because of all the food inside they couldn't swim out and they were just able to just harpoon them you know with spears it's so brilliant to think about it's to think about how long ago it was that they developed that so it's um what you're talking about are these vertical sticks that will allow baby fish to swim through the gates then they get fat they eat in there and then they they say oh shit we can't leave and um the, to think about how how early on it was that they developed something like that is um, it's really mind blowing, and also to think about that they had more people living there before Captain Cook arrived mm. than live there today. Yeah, I mean that that the exact numbers are disputed, obviously, because you can but never it's, know. But it's, it's, it's right around that. It's right around there. Totally, it was a lot, and there were in and yeah, I mean they they created and not only that but there were palm trees along the that they planted on the coast as tsunami buffers so they would take a lot of the because the tsunamis would happen all the time and it would help them the wave energy not move as far up the hill they had a series of medicine and, and food plants called canoe plants that were on the polynesians would stock their canoes they were like arcs you know and the bible and it it had everything for medicine shelter um, fire, kukui nut you could light as a torch, um, everything to provide for disease and, and, and sustenance. So um, incredible system, and they really were astronauts of their time. Like if you think about getting in a little canoe and sailing across the ocean <laughs> hoping to find a landmass that's uninhabited or, you know. Oh, man, and that they found something. Yeah. That's... I, that's crazy to think about because we can talk about, oh, this is how long it takes to sail from Hawaii to Polynesia right now. But that's only if you know where you're going, right? Those original voyagers didn't necessarily know. I mean, they didn't know that Hawaii was there. So I, I wonder how long it took them to get there to just figuring it out, sailing over that long ago. Well, there's an, some interesting arguments that, that, that they did. That they did know where exactly where to go? Well, 
this gets into kind of some out there stuff, but there's a there's something that's very that's mentioned a lot in Hawaiian culture called the Nao. And the Nao is a space between your heart and your and your stomach. And it's um it's where your solar plex and and we talk about like trusting our gut. And they said that, you know, they've done they did exercises with and they continue to exercises with navigators to help them to develop that gut feeling. So between the, the reading the stars, which they were incredible star navigators and this feeling and their solar plex, they were able to more often than not find things that they couldn't know, possibly know. So that's I don't know. That's uh, what I've been told. Wow. That's wild. Um, Hawaii too, what's happening with it right now is this microcosm for earth. And I think that that's what you were alluding to in the name of your film, Island Earth is that, Mm. uh, it is the canary in the coal mine, right? There, there is nowhere else that you can go if you ruin the island, right? So they very quickly had to develop Mm. a, a sustainable form of agriculture and we now on a much larger scale planet earth are having to very quickly figure out these new sustainable agricultural uh, agricultural systems and we can look at hawaii um as that microcosm yeah i was really fascinated with the work of a couple guys and actually in the bay area um so one in the south bay um, um phd um peter vitusik who uh, works at Stanford, and he's really studied uh, island societies a lot. And then also a gentleman by the name of Patrick Kirch in Berkeley, at UC Berkeley, and both of them have teamed up and worked on a lot of projects. And uh, a couple of papers they've written, the thesis has been various riffs on the fact that island societies were kind of pioneers of sustainability because they lived with very finite resources I mean, the land that they were able to cultivate and the fact that a lot of these island pacific island cultures polynesian cultures um a lot of people think of hawaii as being a very fertile place in reality it's it's not i mean the fact that it's in the tropics allows soil creation to happen very quickly but volcanic soils are incredibly poor soils and these islands are incredibly new so the soils on them are like nothing compared to the american midwest I mean, the American Midwest, the reason we are the breadbasket of the world in a lot of ways is because those soils had been developed by... Um, but break that down for me, because uh, I'm just getting into this, and I think that most people don't um, fully understand the importance of soil in growing food. I think that m- people have a general idea of it, but uh, when we're talking about... Um, overusing land where the soil has been degraded to a degree where we can't grow on it anymore. What are people talking about? Right. Well, the current agricultural system is we've, it's something called the Haber-Bosch process uh, that came um, quite a while ago, many decades ago. And it was basically an ability to pull um, and create nitrogen out of the air and out of minerals and things like that we could we could supplement it with different minerals that we could mine but um it was they were able to create this like powdered nitrogen which is what plants need that's ultimate food and nitrogen is usually expressed by organic matter you know feces and decaying different animals and different plants um, most decaying plants are more carbon but you have to have a mixed ratio of carbon and nitrogen those are the base and then you have all these other trace elements that help create healthy crop production or healthy plant propagation and um and so what we've done is we've basically gone okay 
let's just uh, take the very basic of what a plant needs to survive, pull it out of, you know, create this system, industrial process, and then cover our fields, you know, cover the dirt with that. And we can, we can grow big, healthy crops. And, you know, as most things are, it's more complicated. And what we're finding is that by doing that, um, what has historically allowed plants to grow and for erosion to not incur and for water to be held um, and held on the land and not and, and actually trickle down into aquifers and not just go into ocean water or for um, carbon to be sequestered in the land and not bleed up into the atmosphere is basically because of bacteria and different fungi. And so there's this there's this microbiome in the soil um, that has has consistently created that's the building block for all of you know you could argue all of life on earth um, especially for if you look at it then that 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 allowed trees to to be created and there's you can argue that trees are the stewards of all of life on earth they create the ecosystem that all of us can can survive on so if you just put these basic things, these minerals, um, or this, this nitrogen that you're pulling from the air industrially and these minerals, you're never feeding the bacteria and you're actually killing the bacteria because they need, they need to have a raw material to break down. That's what they do. If you give them, if you give an animal pure sugar, it's how long is it going to be very healthy? But if you give the animal, you know, the fiber and the protein and all the minerals and the thing it's going to be grow up to be very strong and that's what these these bacteria are just dying so we're losing the soils meaning we have incredible areas that are dead zones in the ocean because you're basically soil turns into dirt when it's when it's devoid of these um little creatures and it get and it just gets carried away with any rain you have landslides um Carbon, a lot of the carbon that, that we're having issues with with global warming is due to it leaching into the air by these um, little bacteria dying. Yeah, break that down for people. How does carbon sequestration work? Well, carbon sequestration in healthy soils, um, it basically carbon gets held down in the soil as part of the growing medium that allows plants to grow. But when you're when the soils are dead and it becomes dirt, all that carbon that's that's held in the soil goes up into the atmosphere i don't know much more than that basic simple thing i don't know the actual chemistry as to what holds it in or what bonds occur right but i I forget the numbers on it but it's a lot of carbon that is held in soil um it's an incredible amount and it's one of these things that you know when we talk about having sustainable diets and people get on the vegan uh, bandwagon and it's, it's pretty controversial to talk about it's kind of like the gmo issue but using and the reason why the central part of the United States is so rich, and we had these 10-foot deep topsoils, which is kind of unheard of, it's this anomaly in the world. There's a few places in the world that have it, is because of ungulates, primarily buffalo in North, North America, yeah. um, have eaten those the, the, the large grasses, the grassland. They've taken bites, and that whenever, whenever a, you look at the work of Alan Savory, there's a TED Talk he gives. It's pretty amazing, but... Whenever it takes an animal to eat certain grasses, and then the, the, when those grasses get eaten to a certain level, then they dump that equivalent root mass, and that creates the die, and that creates plants. Um, it, it incentivizes plants to die a little bit, and that that when they die and they atrophy. Okay, so you have you have some whatever is above is below, 
And so you eat off when the when the cow there's like a first bite principle and and or any any ungulate so say bison, but when bison are um, grazed by wolves, or when bison are grazing and they're being hunted by wolves, they're usually kept in tight formation and they're kept to move because nature is constantly doing this dance and the wolves are picking off the slowest, oldest. And that what that does is it keeps the bison moving. But if you take away the apex predator like we have with wolves, I'm going down this crazy tangent. No, this is great. This is, where, this is what we do. Okay. Is, yeah, I have, I have no agenda. <laughs> okay. I'm digging it. Um, so if you take away the apex predators, then there's overgrazing, which is can be disastrous because animals are, and especially these large ungulates, are incredibly powerful things on the land. And so anything powerful has the ability to completely destroy things like what we're seeing right now in industrial animal production in feedlots, eating GMO corn and soy. Um, but it also has the ability to repair and sequester carbon back into the soil if it's done responsibly, which takes a lot of knowledge and a lot of work um, for that to be to to be done in a, in a way that with efficacy that mimics how it always was. But anyway, the first bite principle is a cow would take, or a, a cow or a, a bison in our, in our analogy, would take the first bite and the, but the tops of the grasses are the sweetest. And the more it bites down, the bitter, more bitter it gets. But if, but ungulates are pretty large. It takes a lot of calories to even move a few feet. So if they're not challenged and they're not kept on that, on that, um, survival mechanism of having to move and to keep in tight formation, then they're going to probably just get lazy and eat all the grass and kill the grass, which is horrible. But if they're kept in tight formation and we can play a surrogate apex predator to the wolf and keep them moving, um, then they just take the first bite. And what that does is the plant, those, these large grasses dump that equivalent root mass. It atrophies the very bottom of their roots atrophy. And then the soil microbiome, it stops putting energy into it because it doesn't have as long of a top to grow. And so, you know, just roots will grow under as they'll grow as the branches grow above. Same with grasses. That then, that, that atrophied dumped root mass becomes food for the biology of the soil to break down, which creates deeper and deeper topsoil. So that's what we have the ability, and that's what has been happening. But that's that's what King Corn, you've seen that documentary um, that's why we're able to grow. What, okay, so backing up, what's de- the seeds that are developed in Hawaii are are developed to be pesticide resistant, and the 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 result of this exp- this experiment that's hurting that we're finding is hurting people and just des- in destroying this paradise. Um, the the um, the crop of that is seeds. They're not growing food. They're growing seeds that are then exported to the middle the Midwest that have historically had these incredibly deep topsoils. And we're, we're mining that soil to create, and we don't have that much left. Like we've, we've tapped, and, and you know, you could make the argument that a lot of what are in society, this like ant antville experiment that we're in, has gotten to this incredible point, but it's done so by tapping into things that have taken incomprehensible amount of time to, to be created. And so that's what's going on now is, you know, you're creating these, these commodity crops and everything's on the short-term gain. Right. And those commodity crops go feed animals and, and do biofuels and create processed foods and things like that. So, Right. I think that's uh, important for people to know about GMOs is that GMOs are primarily developed to resist pesticides. So what's happening on Hawaii is that they're growing experimental crops so that they can 
the companies can see how much pesticides they'll the crop will be able to resist and then when they find that good number they export the seeds out to Iowa along with the pesticide to go with it and then they grow that crop and then they grow mass 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 amounts of one crop like corn so break down to me exactly what that is doing to the soil well so first of all we don't have the animals uh now grazing mm -hmm. um so you don't get that the benefit um of that secondly you're, you're not it's not um you don't have a number of different crops all in the same area so is it the combination of those two things plus the pesticides that then kills the topsoil yeah okay yeah that my brain will work by attacking this by like slightly different way. Um, we have now, we used to grow food in these like tiny plots, right? You know, you had an, your, your neighborhood, you grew food for your family and you would trade and make different, you go to Europe, you go to Italy and one family will make the pasta and one family will make the sauce and one family will make the, the meat, the cured meat and you'll trade and you'll have dinners over at each other's houses. And for a long time we lived like that. And now um, we grow these incredibly vast plots of land that are all the same crop. And that allows for uniform uh, ripe, well, and this is something else, we, we uniformly ripen a lot of these crops that aren't GMO, like wheat, with a desiccant. Desiccant meaning we spray it right before we harvest to kill everything uniformly so it goes by through the combines. So, co combines. so there's a lot of pesticide residue on wheat and non-organic beer and, things, and, and red and stuff like that. But anyway... Um, the reason we do these monocultures is so they can, we can mechanize the harvest. We can use machines to get a lot for very little input. And what that does and why they're creating pesticide resistance for these seeds is because, you know, you lay a carpet down, you, 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 you till the soil, you create a blank bed, you lay down the fertilizer that's done through the Haber-Bosch process. You lay down certain minerals that you think are going to work. Um, all of this is burning the soil, soil, the microbiome in the soil. And then you lay down these seeds with water strategically and a run of pesticides. And these seeds have been developed in Hawaii to be resistant to these pesticides, but these pesticides kill almost every living thing otherwise. So they have no comp competition. And, and funguses and back to, you know, funguses and weeds and insects. The other thing is you, you create a huge vast plot of land of all the same thing in nature that doesn't happen in nature diversity equals security things compete and also cooperate and that creates no one not one large bank of energy right there's and, no one bug that's going to take out the entire forest there right. are various um, plants and animals that are all operating in a symbiotic relationship. So the ladybug is attracted to one plant and it eats the aphid that's taken out another plant and it all tends to work itself out. And, 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 and that's absolutely oversimplified because I do think that a lot of farmers would argue that uh, there are a lot of weeds, though, that, are, that come into organic uh, crops that can be uh, highly destructive. It seems that, I mean, when I was, when I did my story on, on the GMOs, that was one thing that was a big point is, um, was the pig, pigweed or, uh, what's, what's the, or pigweed? What's, what's the weed that takes out a lot of these crops that, um, that GMOs help, uh, mitigate. I'm not I'm spacing sure. on the name, but, but anyway, yeah. I, I do want to talk about some of the, the, 
I want to let you finish your point, and then I do want to talk about the other side of the argument right. um, as well. Right. Well, I, you know, I went. I took a permaculture course, which is this basically this code of of ethics that were created by these two Australian guys, Dave Holmgren and and Bill Mollison in the seventies. It was a reaction to the protest movement. Like, okay, we know what we're protesting against. So let's figure out what we want, and being proactive instead of reactive. And they basically went around the world and and um, kind of cataloged a bunch of different um, horticultural subsistence-based societies that were indigenous to their place and who lived off the land and and created like found commonalities between those and created this book you know which is called the permaculture designers manual and there's been a bunch of spin-offs and it's created kind of a cultish kind of thing with a lot of people getting really excited about it and it's really it's, it's interesting and one of the things i learned in that was like nature doesn't make mistakes everything has a plan everything has a place and so you learn about weeds weeds are dynamic accumulators meaning they have a really inc- an incredibly deep tap root for their overall biomass and those tap roots are basically you'll you know you'll drive on the freeway and you'll see weeds in the cracks or weeds on the edges of something weeds typically in a landscape their role and that's why when we eat weeds like arugula and dandelion greens they're incredibly good for us they're high in minerals well what they do in their kind of role is they'll go into a damaged landscape something that's that's been disrupted or had a fire and they're the first ones on the scene and they can live in the harshest environment and what they do is they drop nutrients super deep from the ground and then die and then when they die that then starts creating soil because they decompose and they've brought up all those minerals to the surface and that starts the creation of soil so looking at that as the enemy or looking at bugs is what these what weeds and bugs are is they are recyclers of nutrients in the in the cycle of life and so they, you know, you, you create a big monoculture and you have it all of one thing, a bug's going to come in and go time to recycle this back into something that is a polyculture, sometimes something that is diverse. And th- so the we and weeds are doing the same thing. The soils are dead. And so their weeds are there. It's their job in, in nature is to go in into dead soils. And so we're fighting nature all along the way to, to create this mechanized, perfect, you know, thing and we've been taught to think that way. That, yeah, like, that I, I, purity is 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 the ultimate when actually diversity. Nature looks at things as very much the opposite. Yeah, it's the uh, anti antibacterial soap. You know, ew, bacteria is bad. You don't want to have bacteria in you or on you. And ooh, weeds are bad and bugs are bad. They were taught this this from a very young age, and it's a, it is a paradigm shift to understand. Like, wait a second, no, having a healthy gut biome is important not using antibacterial soap will make you healthier. Um, bugs aren't inherently bad. Uh, it, it's a shift in the mind that needs to take place, and I'm happy you're talking about it. So what is the argument for GMOs? Well, I mean, GMO is a technology. So you can argue, you, we can talk about how it's being used currently, and the vast majority of GMO crops are being used to be resistant to pesticide herbicides specifically that are really old um they're so they're very old chemicals that were legal before the EPA existed so there's the, these companies have this limited um cuz cuz they're so toxic now that if they try to develop new ones it's super hard to get through all the 
the the rigors of those of those testing. But in the American, the way America set up is because there's certain things that have been grandfathered in. They can rely on these certain pesticides, and so they're they're altering plants to play that game so that they can use their proprietary benefit. And a lot of these companies they own the formulas of those, and it's incredibly lucrative. So they while Monsanto you know might talk about golden rice and the conversation is always shifted it's 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 very strategically shifted about the potential uses of gmo crops like gmo papaya and around hawaii everybody knows about gmo papaya but that's such a small piece so that's the greenwashing that's taking place is we're we're taught to think that the gmo could save the world by creating traits that would make plants stronger and fighting pests and disease and in reality what's happening is companies are using it to get richer and poisoning the land you know i mean boy i can't make that statement that they're poisoning the land or whatever but a lot of scientists and people who are on the ground in hawaii think that that's the case and poisoning waterways yeah one of the main uh chemicals that's restricted use is called atrazine that's been banned in many other countries Mm. um and tests have shown in frog experiments to lower testosterone levels in male frogs correct yeah, and also actually turn them into females. Like it can, it can actually make them do a sex change. It's atrazine is actually not a restricted use pesticide. It's very common. Okay. It's um, it's like Roundup. So it's eighty million pounds a year. I mean, just just this is broad scale. This is okay. used all over. And Tyrone Hayes, who's in the film, is integrative professor of integrative biology at UC Berkeley. Um, he had a, there's a great article about him and called a valuable reputation in the New Yorker. And um, he's an incredible guy, and he basically proved in his study he was hired by Syngenta, which was Nefartis at the time. They changed their name, a Swiss-based um, pesticide company, one of the top five major pesticide companies in the world. There's about six major players, now four, because two of them merged. But um, he worked for Nefartis, and they hired him to prove that something was safe, and he found very much the opposite through his frog studies. And he used frogs as a surrogate for humans because... Any animal has testosterone and estrogen. There's no difference. So, you know, you could think, oh, well, it does this to frogs. It doesn't do this to you and me. As a matter of fact, yeah, it, it, it's a very accurate thing of, of what's going on in us just because we share the same chemicals that make us either female or male. So, yeah, it's dangerous. And, I mean, he's being, he's being, he's shown it and more people are, be, are showing it. And, um, but back to your GMO question, um, GMO is a technology. It's like nuclear power. It's like your computer. It's like a cell phone. I mean, it's these are these are th- things that we have r- learned how to do that I, as a storyteller, cannot vilify. If I vilified that, I would be cheapening everything that I think I'm here to do. And that's um, I can forever question our level of efficacy as a species right now and our level of foresight. Um, and that's why I was inspired to make Island Earth because I think, you know, through learning and permaculture about all of these different, um, native peoples that I think have been, we've, we've taught to think are, are primitive or, or, or not very intelligent. Are, are, when I learned the level of intelligence that they had, um, with sustaining themselves. And then I learned that our current trajectory it, it really made put a fire in me, made, you know, lit me up to, to try to tell stories, more stories of, yeah. of that. R- real quick, tell me about the GMO papayas, because this is a main point that is 
brought up um, mm. pro GMOs, uh, mm. and the points get convoluted a lot. So I was I was really happy that you parsed that in the film. Right. So when the G- anti-GMO bills started being passed, um, there was a lot of uproar about the GMO papaya, which was invented by um, Dennis Gonzalez. Um, he was a native Hawaiian guy, great guy. Invented um, GMO papaya in a lab in Cornell to combat um, the, the papaya ring spot virus, which is a it's a worldwide virus about of, of papayas. Ironically, it happens with with an aphid that can jump from one papaya to another. And in a polyculture where you only have one papaya every so often, that aphid doesn't get to the other place. Um, so when you grow papayas in a monoculture. To mechanize the harvest, you're going to get these aphids, and the aphids are going to spread, and they're going to kill your papaya. He figured out a way to create a genetic resistance to this specific virus, um, which you could argue, I mean, you could argue it's not safe too, but it's, if you look at the rest of the crazy stuff that goes on in the world, like it's not that unsafe. And the people and the chemical companies were like immediately made the whole thing about this papaya and that the papaya would get, you know, supposedly all these papaya fields got slashed down by angry hippies which you can believe or not believe you know but the attention was drawn there in the media when the the majority of america's seeds that go across the entire midwest are grown in hawaii so it's a diversionary tactic right i mean you have when when these people are getting upset about gmos in hawaii yeah there's some fringe hippies that are like upset about the papaya or whatever but the majority of of the reason why it got to such a level, a grassroots fervor that was able to pass these bills was because people were downwind of open air field tests in which they were spraying complex combinations and oftentimes restricted use. So we're talking when we said atrazine, that's something that actually is broadly used and causing these issues in frogs. These are even gnarlier pesticides. Talking about things like Clorpyrifos. Um, the worst ones are always hard to pronounce. Yeah, yeah, and I can't even. I don't even want to <laughs> attempt to botch the other names. But there's some really gnarly stuff that aren't even legal that they're testing in these places. And the in the it's open air field test sites, and the wind blow. And people in Hawaii know the trade blend winds blow. So you're getting kids that are getting sick. You're getting people who are getting sick. Um, these are oftentimes in areas where they're doing them on the sides of islands where native people live that don't have a lot of money. And so that's why they're willing to, and, and this is the GMO fields. This is in the long line of colonialism. This is, this is post sugar. This is post pineapple. You know, when we went in there and created all these plantations to export and cans and dole and back to the U S when those companies went out of business because they found it cheaper to do business, to cheaper to grow f- their f- their crops in Philippines and other areas in U.S. territories, um, there's these vast plots of land that opened up, and the GMO companies were like pennies on the dollar. Let's go in there, you know, and and lease these, and we can we can capitalize on the United States' lax regulatory system. A lot of other companies, or a lot of other countries, are very harsh on companies, and. Um, America is one of the most lenient. We think of ourselves as being so advanced and free and home of the land, you know, all that stuff. And in re- in reality, we have a we have a climate that allows for very aggressive degradation of our natural capital and the land for quarterly profits. Right. Um, I, a lot of people have. Um, it, it's very hard for them to believe that there are things on the supermarket shelf that 
would be allowed to go through that could potentially be dangerous or give them cancer, right? Like we have this this uh, facade of trust in many ways that um, you know, the government will will stop this stuff from going through. But I, I do think it's important for people to recognize exactly how the system works and that um, it's not necessarily bad people. It's people who need to make a quarterly profit at all costs. And if they have to develop a new chemical um, that's going to cost them a ton of money to do, they're going to do everything in their power to not um, have to innovate in that way. Which Which brings me to one of the strongest points that I thought in your film was um, the point where Kauai was suing the uh, chemical companies and or no no sorry the, the the chemical companies sued the county of Kauai for passing a bill that tell me exactly what the bill is because I'm gonna botch it well the interesting thing about Kauai so the other the other two bills that were passed on Maui and the Big Island were actually anti-gmo bills which also brings into the papaya thing and you know that's kind of the baby with the bathwater and in, in their in their eyes but Kauai was specifically against pesticides and they wanted disclosure and buffer zones around these schools in in retrospect and I think a lot of people across Hawaii would and and as we've seen if you fast forward about the bills that were passed statewide which we'll get to um, those were the most salient points and they wanted disclosure and buffer zones so that they could do epidemiological studies, that they could actually look at long-term studies of human health around these areas and determine whether or not that it's detrimental to your health. But that's what, that's what a lot of the regulatory agencies, that's why we don't, I mean, in order to test if something is good for me and you or bad for me and you, there's two things. So there's there's two categories of toxicity and an exposure to toxicity. There is chronic exposure and there's acute exposure. Acute exposure is easy. It's cheap. And that's what our EPA and you know has is pretty good and our the other regulatory agencies USDA, FDA, they're all pretty good at any issue that comes to acute exposure because you can do one test and know if something's going to be good for you, bad for you. Right. E. coli exposure would be an example of that. A bunch of people eat E. coli on the same day, eat a, a burger with that has E. coli on it on the same day, boom, a bunch of people die. The regulatory commissions come in and say, whoa, 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 what's happening right now? Because something ha- because we can see the impact. But if there's um, low levels of exposure to a certain chemical and then people start getting cancer 15 years down the road, it's really hard to pinpoint exactly what gave them cancer. Exactly. Without doing a long-term study, and these right. long-term studies are expensive, um, you need to do a number of them and correlate them. Um, and so what the chemical companies and the pharmaceutical companies um, are doing is they're trying to stop those things from happening by saying there's not a problem to begin with. And so what Quiet did is specifically was tried to put in, they realized that, so basically grassroots bills get passed all the time we think you know when we talk about doing things locally and being able to make a change locally we can but one of the ironies is there's something that's been there's an amendment to the constitution called preemption and that was lobbied by the corporations and basically i'm botching this a little bit because i'm not a lawyer but to the effect that many things that we do and pass at a local level if they get in the way or they they create um, barriers for multinational corporations to turn profits 
um, it can be struck down. And so that's what happened in Hawaii was it got kicked to the federal courts and the federal courts decided that this, the counties don't have the authority to regulate these chemical companies, that it, they were already sufficiently regulated by the federal government. And in some cases, um, then it got, that got challenged and then it, go, and then it was basically, um, conceded that the state of Hawaii actually has the authority in many of these things. So when I was just there touring the film, I was there at the or I was there at the at the Capitol building in Honolulu watching these court proceedings play out where they had drafted statewide bills to get puffer zones and disclosure so that they could start doing these epidemiological studies for these different things that people like Tyrone Hayes have brought up and passed the house um got struck down in the Senate and it only went as far as it did because the chair, the current, the old chair died and then they were able to replace, you know, unfortunate that he passed away, but they were able to replace, um, that chair with somebody more sympathetic to these grassroots movements and looking more to the long term that this is what the people want and they're going to be smart politicians. They got to play the game, but because they're on a bicameral system as opposed to a unicameral system, it created, it made something really, what does that, what does that mean? So bicameral is a house and Senate. Unicameral is when it's all just one channel, and some states have it. And a woman actually came up to me and let me and educated me about this. And I did a little bit of reading. I'm not an expert, but I know that when you have a unicameral system, it's easier to pass local bills and to get things through because there's less areas of wiggle room. So when you have a bill, the bill can get passed in the House. And then it can get redrafted and almost become a completely different bill and then maybe get through the Senate or not. But it's there's so much wiggle room, even at a local level, as to what what gets passed. And it's pretty disheartening. When I watched it, it was kind of surreal. It was stranger than fiction when I watched, you know, happening and unfolding in front of me. The, the people on the and this is this is just hearsay and conjecture. I mean, I'm not um, I, I was not actually seeing these texts go through but what I heard uh, from a lot of people in the room is that certain reps um, chemical company representatives were there texting talking points to their people while other people who were more sympathetic and had been lobbied into office in their positions you know to get into any position you have to make alliances it's just like survivor and the people who have been you know, and the industry is very large there, the chemical industry. So you have like the Monsanto reps and whatever. They're texting talking points to their people as they're being cross-examined by these different um, experts. And then the other people who are sympathetic to the grassroots movement to get them out were responding to talking, to- talking points from lobbyists that were on the organic side. So, yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. My, so my mom, uh, a number of years ago, started the first homeless teen center in Santa Cruz. So she had to go to a ton of court hearings and trying to get new laws passed so that uh, her organization could house homeless kids. There were a lot of a lot of red tape to have to get through. And one thing that she said to me, that I always remember it, is before you go into the court hearing, you know the answers that are... Everyone knows the answers that they are going to... Um, vote on already so you need to get the people on your side before that court hearing starts you're not gonna it's not like in the movies where you're gonna give some inspirational speech and everyone's gonna start crying and then they're gonna change their decisions it's this very um kind of surgical and mathematic um experience and you need to use whatever you've got to get people on your side yeah yeah how'd you pay for the movie um, my surf sponsor Reef gave me 
a little bit of capital to start and I did turn it into like a three month trip and was able to cut a Kickstarter trailer from there and raise more money. And then I worked three jobs and I've pretty much self-funded the last 50 grand of the project or something. Damn. It was about a $250,000 project altogether. Right. With a lot of, with a lot of, um, volunteer help as well. Did you know that that was going to be the budget when you started? No idea. No idea. Just Was there any model that you were uh, going for when making your film? Had there been other documentarians um, who you consulted with or stories that you saw um, and used them as a model? I, I love Radiolab, the podcast Radiolab, and I wanted to create like a film that had some kind of dealing with a complex issue that would maybe change your mind at the end. And I really like like those Planet Earth films and different PBS documentaries with really beautiful imagery. And I, I wanted to create something that that was beautiful, but also complex. And and later on, I've learned I needed to make it human too. And so I learned more um, how to integrate more like empathetic, um, an empathetic line through it out at all because... And you felt that it lacked that in some of the earlier drafts? I did. Well, yeah. I mean, I I, I, th- I think it's hard. I, I'm super into this stuff. Like, you're super into this stuff. And we, you know, but those people, other people don't care that much. So I had to, uh, the, with the addition of Malia uh, Chun and her daughters, which was the last thing I went and shot, who is somebody who lives and is directly affected by these chemical companies. And her story is one, is less of, um, shedding facts that allow you to understand um, the narrative that I wanted to create, but more allows you to be in the, somebody's shoes that's going through those hard decisions. Yeah. Humans can connect to other humans. It's uh, Facts and statistics are some of the most unconvincing forms of, uh, of information. And I thought that you, that you did a good job because everyone can imagine living in a house next to a chemical company and worrying about your family. Um, I think that that is a very human through line. So, but that wasn't initial, that wasn't initially part of the story. Is that correct? No, I met Malia later on, um, through a friend and there's a certain amount of trust that has to be established. If somebody's going to share that sensitive of a, of a topic with you and she was incredible and opened up her house to me. And for a couple of weeks, we did everything together and, um. Yeah, she's a. Did you shoot? You shot the whole thing too. Yeah. You were the primary cameraman the whole time. Mm. Wow. What were you shooting on? Um, a mix between a Sony A7S two and a Red camera. Yeah. Yeah. Such good. I love. I I use the the A7S. I love it. Yeah. It's so fun. It's so dynamic. Yeah, and it's kind of un like doesn't make people gun shy yeah small yeah it's that is that funny how the smaller the camera the more comfortable people get around it you get a big camera and then all of a sudden they freeze deer in the headlights and takes a lot more to massage them back into a comfort zone totally um that's cool that you were able to use your interest your early on interest in photography and uh apply it to this film and, and actually be the shooter um, as well as you're able to use your your marketing and your writing skills. I want to talk about um, your skills getting projects funded. Hmm. Yeah, you'd mentioned that earlier. 
about maybe how writing can help get you know pitches made and, and yeah. funded and well, I, you, well you're good at this and, and i it's a point that most people run up against because there are a lot of passionate creatives out there hmm. but don't uh have the skills to get companies to give them uh money hmm. and it's something that i've noticed you've been able to make work for yourself um and I want to I want to talk about what you think the biggest mistakes people make are when they're pitching projects to companies, and some of the biggest things that you've learned along your pathway. Yeah, I mean, to be completely honest, I've been I've had horrible luck pitching anything to any companies. They've everything I've done, companies have come to me, and I think it was what we were talking about earlier over coffee before this interview was like, it was it's. It's a situation where I, I'll get really excited about something and I'll do it and f- kind of put everything on the line. And then the fallout from that project creates something that other people want to be a part of. And then they contact me. Every time I try to approach anybody, I never, to the point where I've gotten discouraged. Like there should be something that work, would work out perfectly. And I write this whole elaborate thing and then nobody listens. So I'm, I, I don't know. I'm not the best person to ask about that. I feel like I can write well and I'm, I'm passionate about doing diff- telling different stories, but man, and that's why I wanted to take down that writing well book you said, cause I want to, I need to learn. Right. Yeah. What are some things that you make sure to put in a pitch? Um, because you have worked with a number of companies. I'm sure there have been good experiences and bad experiences. Uh, and it would be helpful for, for people to be able to navigate that ecosystem a little bit better. Again, I'm not the best guy for this. I'm so bad at pitches. Um, I just, I found that that com- working with companies is like doesn't at least the companies I work with like it doesn't work the way you think it would. Like people are really, it's about an emotional response of wanting to work with somebody and thinking that that person would be a fun time to work with and. I, that's the the only graces of me being able to work with all these different, you know, companies, Dr. Bronner's, Guayaquil, Reef. I mean, there's been a lot of others, Patagonia. I've done stuff with them. Um, and a lot of other companies is just probably be, be, can, been because they've saw something I actually physically did and wanted a piece of that for what they want to do. Right. Yeah. I th- uh, a big misconception I think a lot of people have is that companies know what they want. Right. But a lot of times they just see something that's cool and they're like, oh, yeah, let's, we want to be a part of something like that. Right. It's just people in a room who have uh, marketing budgets and have bosses and need to come out with something cool. So by giving them a, a physical product and having enough of those out there and asso- associated with you tends to raise the belief level in companies or, or companies' belief in you. And 90% of the energy around talking with different companies is, is all about how what I do does and does not interface with where they are. Hmm. So what does a conversation like that sound like? Uh, well, you know, we want to... Excuse me, I got a burp. 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 Everyone, everyone burp in unison right now. <laughs> um, hopefully you don't keep that in. Um, oh, it's all in. Oh, uh, great. Yeah, no, you don't edit. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. You know, you know, companies will, will say, we want this or we want that, and I'll look at what they're doing and how maybe their the trust of the consumer and the way their brand is perceived would then alter what I do or what I've done to 
the the um the response you know the if, if we did the same thing for them there's different barriers um ideological barriers and i'll try to navigate that with them and um will you bring me into the room I'm trying to like hypothetically like what's a good one like it was have there been good experiences with Dr. Bronner's or Guayaki yeah. or Reef it, well increasingly you know as I've done projects that I just really want to do like with the, Dr. Bronner's it was easy it was just more like I, I had a guy who wrote a pitch who, who specializes in fundraising he wrote Dr. Bronner's a pitch and it was very much I would have gotten much more into the like artistic trying to talk about what we're doing he was very he was more like this is the film this is what it's about this is how many tour stops we're going to do this is how many you know um this is the locations that we're going to be at um and they went for it and they and i ended up i found out that they went for it because david bronner the son of dr bronner likes what i do Right. So, <laughs> and, and, and I met him and I, I did a show, you know, I, I showed the film at the Dr. Bronner's headquarters and it was like, it was just a bro down, you know, of like being interested in the same stuff. And I found out that I probably could have written nothing on that pitch and we would have gotten it. So, right. Oh yeah. A lot of times the ones that go through were so easy. You're like, Whoa, wait, that it was just a simple yes. Okay, great. We're doing it. And a lot of times that it's a no, you spent three or four months on some long arduous pitch that then was just way not in line with what the company wanted anyway. Yeah. And I think it just gets back to, I've always wanted to do things my way. And I don't think that there's any, I've never had any success with any shortcuts or any formulas. And so I'll just get really passionate about something, figure out a way how to bootstrap it, do it, make, kill myself to make it look good, even if it doesn't have the money behind it. And then that opens doors as opposed to me doing a bunch of jobs. I've never, wor- I've never had a job. I've never hit up a company to work for ever. You know, I just, I'm, I get obsessed about something. I do it. I mean, everything from pro surfing, like I, I got sponsored by Reef when I was 28, I think, or 29, and I'd totally given up on that world. I did some pro longboard stuff when I was a kid, but I went into LA and I went into filmmaking and I was freelance and I just did a bunch of commercial work and picked up anything I could. And I had corduroy and I made surf films and none of that wasn't making any money other than the stuff in LA and living super cheap. And, you know, Reef approached me because of Stoked and Broke, but I was just ex- inspired to make that and inspired to do corduroy i wasn't thinking it's not the right way to think that's not how they teach you to think in business school it's foolish but i've done it i've been so foolish and so passionately foolish that not a lot of people are passionately foolish and so probably it creates some kind of unique thing that then i've found my own way but i don't i don't know that it's um that there's any like i've never been good at the pitch or the this or the that and i've never gone to school so for me, it's working, but I, I definitely realize that there's going to, I recognize the value in understanding how the way the world works. I think I've just always capitalized on my outsider, being a total outsider and being able to articulate the point of view of an outsider. I think as surfers in general, we're kind of outsiders because we have this immersive connection with our natural environment that is a lot of people would look at as being very foreign and when we come back on land i mean don't you feel like whenever you come out back back from a surf things are just a little bit you could kind of put yourself in the shoes of this guy who doesn't surf or has no connection with that and you feel 
it's a little marginalizing and but can be a good thing yeah yeah it's a unique lens to look at the world through it's very um you know, it's seasonal. It's it's a very foreign concept for most people to um, hear that a, a lot of our days are dictated around the tides and the winds and the swells. That seems um, it, it's foreign to most people because most people have their their daily agenda and they have all their meetings to go to. And it's um, it, we are inherently more connected to the natural world, right? Even being able to go out. Uh, and look at the ocean and know which way the wind is blowing from and what uh where the swell is coming from and you know you've spent enough time around the ocean that it clicks for you and you that's that's second nature right and, but for most people who are looking out at the ocean um they have no concept of what's happening out there so it is specialized information that even though it might seem simple to you um is really fascinating to a lot of people well it, it cre- i feel like it creates for a long time when I was growing up, I mean, now surfing's so mainstream and it's accepted and you're cool universally. I wanted to do surfing because I was because it would make me accepted in my middle school, but that was one part of feeling different or like looking at the world in a different way. Also, I'm a shade darker than a lot of kids in Orange County where I grew up. Um, my dad was adopted, so I don't totally know my heritage. I haven't done the 23andMe yet, but my parents were not religious, which it's a very Christian area down where I grew up I was an only child I didn't have an older brother or any older siblings or any any other siblings to like learn how to be social um so I've, I've always come at life as an outsider and then you know I got the success at making surf films and I never had the college experience so it's like that's what I guess I've operated on for a really long time did you ever have the fear of feeling like a fraud fear of feeling like a fraud um, I think it's been a long time since then, but I think I was. I mean, when I was in my early 20s and late teens, I was afraid that people, um, I don't know. I feel like I, I've, I've always kind of earned what I've done because it's come through so much uh, hardship that I feel like at least I own my suffering, <laughs> you know? Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think... I think I've never tried to do or pretend. I think maybe when I was younger, yeah, I did try to pretend that I knew stuff I didn't know. And now I'm I'm pretty comfortable with like sharing facts that I've learned, but saying as a caveat, like I'm not an expert, I'm just a surfer. And yeah, it takes the pressure off. Yeah, but I, I, I like being curious and I like sharing and yeah. talking, obviously. You told me uh, over coffee that you have become a better friend to yourself. We were talking about the conversations mm-hmm. inside our head. And I've been thinking about this a lot recently and that the most important conversations you're going to have all day are the ones with yourself mm-hmm. and our belief systems and our outlook is largely going to determine what we accomplish and, um, our enjoyment throughout life, right. Um, is how we think of ourselves, how we think of the world, our relationship to success, mm. failure, not taking ourselves too seriously. And you said that in the past couple of years, you've become a better friend to yourself. How'd that happen? Yeah, I think, I think being a good friend, I, I think I had demons, you know, that would, they would tell me I'm not good enough or fear, or there were certain people in my life that didn't think I was, you know, didn't think the best didn't hold the best sides of myself to be true they chose to focus on the the worst sides and I let those 
those relationships or those people or the idea, maybe they didn't even exist, but the idea of them thinking that way, like really occupy my headspace and control a lot of the decisions I made and based on fear. And I think. You have any I, examples of those? Um, yeah, like I had a, I had a number of step parents growing up and I had a stepdad who is kind of verbally abusive and. I realized there was a there was a threshold there was a tipping point when I realized that he was when he was one time t- telling me going off on me that he was just talking about himself and that ultimately all of our realities are just a, our own projections of what what is and it's all a relationship with ourselves so when I realized that I was like oh okay you're just talking about yourself like that that's got to be hard to be that person and to be thinking that that negatively about things and and I, you know, I can either help you um, see that or or try to prove you wrong so that you could maybe look for that in somewhere else in your life or even look at that in yourself, look for that in yourself, or I'm burnt out on dealing with you and I don't want to give you that. And that's kind of ultimately what I decided. I was just like, I'm not, I don't respect you anymore. And that that is going to come in the form of me disengaging and just doing my own thing. And that's when I moved into a van. You know, that was my uh, 20 years old. I moved into a van after spending time with John Peck, who was in Riding Waves and and meeting. I went on a, a month-long trip with John Peck through Baja, which wow. was an ex- interesting experience. Was it in his van? <laughs> yeah. And um, we met this guy. To named, infinity and beyond. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we met this guy named uh, Glenn Horn um, down in the middle of Baja, and he had been he'd converted a milk truck from the fifties into a living, a house on wheels. And it had this loft that he'd created out of like aluminum. And, um, he was built out like a little, like a, like a wood cabin. And he's worked on both of my van. He's helped me with both vans I've done. He's been a lifelong friend since then. But, um, yeah, I first bought my van and just lived in this like shell of an electrician's with the shelves still intact and my dad and I like the only thing we did is go to the hardware store and put in a bed or just a piece of plywood that we could then put a foam piece of foam for my bed and I lived in that for five years six years wow and down um, in Southern California yeah yeah and I'd go to the mountains to um to get work done when it got hot in the summers I was kind of like nomadic just to get work done but I just wanted to be left alone and make stuff and not have people tell me I was throwing away my life or judge me for being different I just wanted some space and and my van allowed me to do that I mean my van has always been a mobile office I've done it's inter- it's funny now that van life is like taken off to be this thing <laughs> yeah. like to be Mexican blankets and dogs and all these things and and um for me it was just this like totally utilitarian way of getting the shit done I wanted to get done and not be hassled yeah. And not pay rent and save what I made and be able to make a fraction, like not say yes to jobs that were soul sucking. I could just say no to pretty much everything because I hardly had any expenses. Yeah. Having a low overhead creates a ton of freedom in your life. That's for sure. And not having a lot of stuff too, because living in a small space, uh, is there's no quicker way to get rid of the shit that you don't need. That's for sure. So did you, so you got rid of a bunch of stuff? Uh, yeah, I mean, I had, you know, I had not a lot of stuff to begin with. I mean, I don't, I've never, I don't know, maybe I had a lot of books and stuff at my mom's, but for me, it was just like pushing back. The one thing that was, that I realized was 
I had to become comfortable with being uncomfortable because living in a van is uncomfortable. I mean, I think people can try to romanticize it all they want, but it's not comfortable. Yeah. You know, (laughs) when you go surf, you have a smelly, pissy wetsuit and in a house, you can put that wetsuit outside in a fan. You're sleeping on it, man. You're sleeping on that thing. (laughs) Yeah. It, it, you know, I think, and I think that's what a lot in our society in general, and I think what makes, which would separates me from most people and maybe yourself as well and a lot of other people is people seek comfort and you talk to the average person and they're like looking for comfort and I've never understood that I've never cared about comfort I've always wanted to do exciting I've wanted exciting over comfort right which can create drama and dumb stuff that doesn't need to be there which I'm learning to integrate later on in life is to try to become more of a better family member a community member but that pole has never been there. I've always been willing to sacrifice it. You probably trying to serve Mavericks. I mean, that's not comfortable. Right. Know? But the beer tastes a lot better after that experience, right? right? Okay. Right. A cold beer or a comfy bed uh, is a lot more comfortable in relationship to an uncomfortable experience first, right? But one of the uh, big mistakes I think a lot of people make in life is they're constantly chasing comfort and avoiding uncomfortable experiences. Whether or not that's that's literal, uh, just trying to kind of barricade yourself in a, a secure place with stuff, thinking that's going to create happiness, as well as avoiding uncomfortable situations physically but also emotionally right how many conversations do we avoid because that's a tough thing to say and where it's way easier to tell a white lie in the moment to someone uh or not say how we really feel or what we really desire and you yeah. know what our our real true goals are because it's uncomfortable to do that shit but how good does it feel when you finally sit down with someone and say hey we need to fucking talk i'm gonna tell you exactly how i'm feeling right now and you get through it. It almost feels like a like a chiropractic adjustment sometimes. Like I've um, I would equate it to uh, I've dislocated my shoulder when I was eighteen, and the the feeling of having a body part be out of place is very strange. It, it's really painful, but it's also just a strange feeling of seeing and feeling your shoulder in a place that it shouldn't naturally be, mm-hmm. and the feeling of the doctor rotating my shoulder back in it going. Oh, felt so, it was the best feeling, right? And and we can relate that to even just conversations that are tough to have but are so important. And we were talking about earlier, we're surfing, we were getting super deep into energetic flow, right? And when you're when you're in a point in life where you do feel energetic flow and it's almost like something's pushing you along, right? Things just get easier rather than trying to constantly be fighting against things. And I think that a lot of times people are fighting against and avoiding uncomfortable situations and and they go throughout through life um for way too many years doing that so it's it's cool that you've um you've learned that at a young age yeah i guess it's just something you're born with or maybe or not or just or having that and my dad exposed me you know my dad's surfer and went to the mountains a lot and i remember my first experience it was like that it was like we'd go on all these hikes you know he's a big fly fisherman and we went on these hikes and we were up in Tuolumne Meadows where we'd go every summer and in the high Sierras and um one summer it seemed like every single afternoon with thunderstorm you know it'd be this torrential downpour with thunder and lightning and um we were like four miles five miles I was like four or five five miles from back being warm 
having food and we had to hike back and i remember it being like when you're four or five like that's like 10 12 miles like your legs are half or a third of as long and stamina so i remember getting back and being so cold and miserable like i would only get i would only throw fits and like in throw tantrums when i was only like mildly uncomfortable but when i really got uncomfortable it was more like okay we're doing this and i remember feeling that number one of pushing through that and then we warmed up we took showers and we ate dinner and i can still taste the taste of that food you know and that's just something that like for the rest of my life and my dad was constantly thinking back i never thought about this but my dad was constantly showing me that delaying gratification and putting yourself through uncomfortable situations always felt better and you could live more simply and have a better and kind of like flow under the radar of mass society you know the masses or the culture pervasive culture by doing that and by testing and pushing back on the boundaries of your comfort. So yeah, and having a, a different relationship due to discomfort. Mm. Also, I, I, that's a big thing um, in you know, surfing big waves is mm. is shifting your relationship to an uncomfortable situation. One of my favorite stories um, from a guy who's I'd probably consider him like my greatest hero is a guy named Josh Waitskin. He wrote a book called The Art of Learning, and it completely redirected my life. I read it in high school, and it was largely informed my decisions to become a filmmaker and go do my own thing. But um, he has a son now and he tells a story, his stories about how most people teach their kids to have a, a negative relationship to storms, right? So when it starts raining outside, the parent will say, oh no, that's too bad. It's raining outside. We shouldn't go out, right? And it, it associates rain and and quote unquote bad weather with staying inside and not having fun. So what he does is he intentionally will tell his son, he'll say, Jack, look, it's raining. We're going to go puddle stomping right now. Jack, look, it's a snowy day. We're going to go outside. So he teaches his son to not have a bad association with different weather. He also will, uh, he's turning him into such a little Jedi. He takes cold showers or he teaches his kid to take cold showers and not have a negative association with cold mm. because it's only as we teach kids to have negative associations with with uncomfortable situations that they make it that right but if mm. we can shift our our perception then it's it's not nearly as bad yeah i mean historically you could understand why people would say bad weather when they're just trying to survive and you don't want to yeah. get your core temp <laughs> yeah. down and you got to get back in the cabin <laughs> people who are living in tents are like screw you dude <laughs> sunny days are awesome so i think i think that part of that is just a is 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 where we're at as a society now our comfort comfortability has become just a de facto yeah and people and people lose their freedom by falling into the comfort trap yeah that's really cool absolutely um what's your next year look like what would be a, a perfect year for cyrus sutton oh man i always know my year and then it always changes just like you you know yeah we were I, talking about this earlier i have it planned out till next june by the month but I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, I, so I work for Guayaki. I'm the head of media at Guayaki Yerba Mate. And um, they're basically in those yellow cans. They've kind of found a growing niche. And, and there's people more interested in organics have become the de facto organic alternative to a pick-me-up that you get at a Monster or Red Bull. 
And so they're finding increasing market share and they've gotten budgets now to produce content. And I did Corduroy TV for a long time. So they're basically, we're inspired by that to create like a, a Red Bull, but more organic or a good news network thing, which it's about permaculture. It's about people doing like local, local legend kind of pieces, people in their community trying to change it for the better. Um, I'm doing a series of these kind of like deep immersion pieces where we're going to go. It's going to be like a, a Thomas Campbell meets planet earth, you know, or we'll film with red cameras and all the time lapses, all the crazy stuff, but I'll, but try to get a little more artsy. And, um, there's a few, there's a music video by Coldplay called up and up that has this like really interesting stitching together of footage. And I kind of want to make like a, what we talked about is like making an experience right now. People are the documentary mini documentary online is like real popular, like the Yeti thing. And those, those are great. But telling those one person stories is, uh, I think has become kind of formulaic for a lot of people and it's, it's done a lot. So I want to get away from that and to create something more experiential. So um, we're excited about that. I'm going to take a trip this summer with my buddy Hayden Peters, who does done a lot of work for Nat Geo and stuff like that. So he just got the new red camera and, we're going to go in my van with my dog and go on the West coast there. And then um, I'm going to finish touring the film. I think it's going to have a long tail of just like following up and film festivals and independent screenings. Yeah. And, Where can people go to check out the film? Oh, it's going to be Islander. It's, it is islandearthfilm.com. And I am halfway through, we're talking in Santa Cruz at your home and which is halfway through a West coast tour, 27 stops. Got 16 more to go. I've already been across Australia and a couple places in Australia and across the Hawaiian islands. And it's going to be released in late June online, iTunes, hopefully Netflix, Amazon. That's what we're working towards now. And, um, but we're allowing people to host their own screenings, whether they're through a local theater or just getting it, buying a screener and showing it for the local community. So it'll just be a lot of stuff with that, you know, press stuff. And, but other than that, I just want to, I want to chill a little bit. It's been an intense few years because I've I've bought in a house. I have a dog now. I bought four acres up in Washington State, and wrangling the land up there has been pretty intense, especially this last winter. As you know, down here it was really rainy and windy, and up there we had a lot of ice storms and down trees. So, what does chilling look like for you? Oh, I don't know how to chill. I was joking. <laughs> I was joking the other day <laughs> about that, hurt. and. Uh, yeah, it's it's for me chilling is like resting and getting exercise so that I'm ready to take on physically the next thing and in, in present. It's not indulging in something that just because I want to do it, which is something I really want to do in the future. <laughs> I just have too many um things that I'm passionate about outside of myself. So, I don't know. I, how do you chill? <laughs> um, you know, I don't, I actually don't enjoy chilling unless I feel accomplished. There's, I, I get a, a, if I'm on a, a surf trip and the surf trip is, is lasting too long or I don't have projects that I'm working on while I'm doing it, I start to get neurotic and I start to feel like, okay, like we got to let's do something. We've just been hanging out and watching movies and surfing. This is fun, but it's self-indulgent and okay. And, and I, it's, I find that I'm at my lowest lows sometimes when I'm, um, when I am feeling self-indulgent. Right. But I do also, I'm now learning to give myself time and celebration when there is, 
when they're when I feel I deserve it, right? Like having a couple beers with friends after I feel like I really did a good job on something helps recharge me. But um, I I would say that a, a, an issue and actually a point of anxiety that I still struggle with is that we live in this this world where it's there's constantly excuses to celebrate all the day all the time <laughs> yeah woo. my sports team yeah, won my or... sports team won we're gonna make up a holiday and get wasted as a result and yeah. um yeah man it's i mean it's something that i still struggle with and i find that i'm getting better at chilling uh since i found meditation in the past couple of years um chilling to me a lot of times looks like not looking looks like n- turning all the screens off leaving the phone at home that's a big big part of it is just putting the phone in a drawer and going out for a day or going out for two days and and just those moments um with a lack of input i find really uh recharges me and and helps me clarify um my goals it's almost like this feeling sometimes where i get too i get going too fast um and i it's i sometimes forget why it is that i'm really really doing it and there's this constant push pull between my ego of wanting to do it and um really understanding that i'm in a position where i can help and i i do think that i man like the world needs our help like we need to at least be talking about some of these issues uh and doing whatever it is that we can to get involved and that path isn't always clear but doing something in service of of um a world larger than yourself is not only does it reduce anxiety, but I think that just that that meaning can be this kind of anchor uh, to to provide a type a kind of well being and mindfulness that I think a lot of people lack. So for me, chilling a lot of times looks like putting all the screens away, going out and um, and just coming home. Like that feeling of just like okay, what's what's home? Like who who are you really, and why is it that you're really? doing this um and and questioning the premise of a lot of the projects that i've been engaged with i, I find that that's a lot of times what what just like chilling and and taking the ten thousand foot look back at my life and, and questioning why it is that i'm doing things and then sometimes redirecting as a result mm-hmm. um that's yeah that's a long-winded answer to it um but I'm I'm starting to find a balance more and more. I'm I'm starting to become a better friend of myself, which uh, I think is a really good way to put it. Mm. Um, so, yeah, we I'm I'm still learning though, man. That's one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast is that I sit down with people who I respect and uh, see how they're f- figuring it out too. You know, I definitely I definitely don't have the answers, but putting that fucking demon device away sure does help from time to time the demon device the pocket robot the pocket robot yeah yeah right on man well thanks for sitting down with me yeah i I, uh i really enjoyed the conversation yeah me too what a legend once again i highly recommend checking out island earth you can go over to my website kyle.surf where i put a link to it get in touch with cyrus directly if you liked this episode he's on instagram I need music. I need music. If any of you are musicians or know musicians, I'm ending these podcasts with songs. So get in touch with me uh, and I will give you credit and I'll post a link to your band page on my site. With that, I leave you with this groovy ass tune called Mermaid Legs by the Getaway Dogs. See you soon.
Baby's back one day in mermaid's lane. 